Galatians, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 and 6 this week and next week. We're going to start looking at the opening of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The opening of the seals, the last seal that is open also contains, in a sense, the trumpets. The last trumpet that is blown contains the seven bowls that also follow. The tribulations, in my mind, doesn't start until the seal is open or the stroll is open. Then it begins to show the awfulness or the worst part of humanity. It begins to show what man will do to one another when the Holy Spirit is no longer restraining Satan's influence upon man. Right now, the Holy Spirit restrains all that the enemy can do. He holds back some of the worst things that he would do. But as the Holy Spirit steps aside, not gone, a lot of times we say, well, the Holy Spirit is totally removed, so, so, solely taken out of the way. I don't believe he is totally taken out of the way because in Romans 8 he says, if you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of his. If those saints in the tribulation time are going to truly know the Lord, they have to also know the Holy Spirit. There's no way they're going to be able to stand on their own, in their own flesh, in their own power, and stand against Satan. Nobody can do that. If it was, there was no need of Christ, and there was no need of Christ sending his spirit. We could have just did it on our own. But the Holy Spirit then takes care of those saints who profess the Lord Jesus Christ, even to this point, because it brings it out very well in Revelations 12, that they overcame the Antichrist, or Satan, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their lives to a point that they were not willing to die for Jesus Christ. And that has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit to be able to allow a person to stand against the enemy and all the things that Satan's going to throw at us during this period. You also will discover from the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, there's these little vignettes in between. But when you get to chapter 19, you begin to see Christ truly taking a position. 19, 20, 21, at the end, 22. You really begin to see Christ take his position. When we talk about opening the seals, I want you to remember something. It is not so much Christ that's doing it as it is Christ that allows it. Not Christ doing it, but allowing it, what takes place. Oftentimes when we talk about tribulations and, and the seal, we talk about, boy, what God's doing, what God's doing. I want you to understand, what God is going to allow is man to see himself at his very worst without the helper. The Holy Spirit. And he allows Satan to pour out his influence, his rage upon man in a way that has never been done before in history. So it starts off with this question in chapter 5, really. 
who is worthy to judge and open the scroll? And it boils down to Jesus only. Jesus only can open the seven seals. Jesus only can judge. That's why Jesus is at the beaming seat. And that's why Jesus is at the white throne. He's at both. He is the only one who can judge the living and the dead. The living, those who are alive in Christ, those who are dead outside of Christ. He's the only one who can judge them. Nobody else. He's the only one who would be given authority to judge. Nobody else. He is the only one. In the seventh seal, as I said, are the seven trumpets. In those seven trumpets are the seven bowls. And we're just going to go through those. At least, we won't get to them now, but I'll get back to them. But I want you to know where I'm going to be going. If you want to read ahead, read ahead. And it's all right. Now, the beginning of tribulation really starts, I believe, with the seals being open. This is God allowing Satan, as I've said, to influence and do whatever he so desire with people without any restraints of the Holy Spirit. Go with me to Job 1. Job chapter 1. Pick up with me in verses 9 and 11. Satan brings forth a charge, and remember, he's the accuser. He's the one who will bring forth accusations. He's the one who challenges God about our walk with him. He's the one who, who says, Look, you call them saints. You call them saved. You call them your priest. He's the one. Now, look what he says about Job here. Starting in that verse 9, he said, Does Job fear God? Let me ask you that question right off the bat. Do you really fear God? Do you really reverence God? Do you have a fear of God that it is so deep within you that it somehow stops you from doing the wrong thing. Do you really have a godly fear or high, high respect for God? That that respect for Him alters your conduct. That respect for him says, boy, this is what I'll do and what I will not do. And he says, boy, does God fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him? See, there's a reason why Job fears you. You put a hedge around him. And, and Joe feels maybe, boy, if he does anything wrong, he loses his what? His hedge. He loses something. <laughs> and, and Satan's charge is, the only reason he loves you is because you blessed him and provided for him. Take away your provision of food. Take away your provision of shelter. Take away your provision of clothing. Then see what you got, God. Make them hunger a little bit. Make them be wanting a little bit. Then see what you got. See if they'll really love you. See if they'll praise your name. See how they'll respond to you. Take away some of these things. And then see if they really, really love you like they say. And he goes on and he says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? 
you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds and spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you. Satan said, boy, you do away with all this stuff that you have so freely given them. They'll curse you. In other words, the folks that you say worship you, they don't worship you just because they know you. They worship you because of the benefits they get from you. Remember what it says in Revelation 12? Eh? They love not their lives. A lot of us love our lives and the things that are in our lives. And he goes on and he says, Remove your hedge and they'll curse you. Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now, what you're going to see in Revelations, you're going to see that Satan can lay a finger on the saints. That Satan can kill the saints. That's why we read about all these souls under the altar who have been slain. We don't know if they've been slain by their heads being removed. We don't know if they've been slain by some kind of tor- torture. We don't know how they die. But it just says that there's thousands of them that have been slain. In the first part of this area of the seal, it says one quarter of the population was destroyed. Then later on it says one third of the population. But I took the one quarter... If the one quarter of seven billion people, if you did away with China and the United States, you would have one quarter. China's population right now is one billion three hundred and eighty six million people. The United States is three hundred and sixty something million people. We haven't hit the billions, but China has hit the billion mark. So just think of China being gone and the United States being gone. It would be one quarter of the population. In Revelation 5, the question is asked, Who can open the stroll? As I thought about this, in one way it's kind of comical. It's like, Jesus isn't a secret in heaven. He's not a secret there. You know. Uh, they have to know who he is. They have to know he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Heaven has to recognize who Jesus is. Can we turn that down a little bit because I'm getting feedback, too much feedback? And what he's saying, in a sense, is not so much on heaven's behalf as it is on earth's behalf. Because who is worthy to open the stroll? Or who has the authority and the ability to allow these things that are going to yet happen in the future to happen? Who has that authority? Who has that power? Who has that kind of strength? Who has that? So the question is formed, who is worthy to open the stroll? Who's worthy to do that? And, and John's there, and John says, Then I saw, in Revelation 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now understand that there's somebody else sitting on the throne. It doesn't say that it's God sitting on the throne here. But it says there's some other figure and it allows us to know in heaven there's ranks also. There's positions also. That somebody else sitting on the throne here. It's not Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. 
as we're reading this text. And it says, in his right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll was written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But one in heaven or on earth, under the earth, could open the scroll. No one. But no one. No one. So it's like heaven is searching for someone who can open this scroll. Now, I'm quite sure everybody in heaven knows who can open that scroll. (laughs) But he paints it for us as though we're searching heaven. We're searching earth. We're searching under the earth. We're searching for someone who has the power and the authority to open the scroll. And it says, there is none. There is none. And what he's trying to illustrate is this. There's no angel, there's no man who has that what? That authority. Or has that power that can open or allow what's going to take place to take place. No man can control the Antichrist, but there's one who can control. There's no angel who can control the Antichrist, but there's one who can control. And it is that one who sets the limits and the boundaries for all of us. For we live and have our movement in him and him alone. Whether we are saved or unsaved, we are limited by what God allows us to do or don't do in the person of Jesus Christ. We are limited. And man hasn't learned that lesson yet. That is God that sets my boundaries. It's God who allows me to commit adultery. Not that he is the one who says go do it. But he allows it without taking your life. He allows you to steal. He allows you to cuss. He allows you to profane his name. He allows it. Just think of the only other recourse that would take place. Death. And he says, there's none to be found. And John says, he begins to cry. He begins to weep. Because there's no one to open the seal. Now remember, John is a visitor of heaven in this vision. But the angels are not visitors. But John is. So when you come into that verse 6, he simply says, Then I saw a lamb. Then I saw a lamb. In verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. He alone is the one who is able. Now understand this in scripture also now. Once the seals are opened... You never hear again of having to open up, in a sense, the trumpets or the bowls because they follow the seals. In the seventh seal, if you check it, the trumpets follow. After the last trumpet, in the last trumpet, the bowls follow. Why is it that only this one person has the ability to judge and open the seals? And I want to take a few moments here and declare why he has the ability to judge. To judge. 
Go to Colossians 1.16. So we're going to travel just a little bit. Colossians 1.16. Because, see, he who created has the privilege or the right to judge that which he has created. Every architect who does his own drawings puts his name and his seal on those drawings. Nobody else can claim another architect's drawings. That drawing always got to go back, in a sense, to that architect, to that original drawer. Nor can you really copy per se. Now, this is what really gets me sometime. A square building is a square building. <laughs> but you can't copy exactly that same square building. You can't put the rooms in the same place. You may rearrange them. Now you're not copying. But a building 100 by 50 is a building 100 by 50. <laughs> You would say no one architect owns that 100 by 50 design. But it also details on what goes on the outside of that design, what goes on the inside of that design, what is what with it. He owns it in a sense. That precise drawing. God owns every human being. He designed every one of us. He said he knew us before we were even formed in our mother's wombs. And look around, even with the billions of people, how many of us really look the same, per se? Yes, we all have the ears, we have the mouth, we have the eyes, the nose, the hands, the legs. You haven't seen no person walking around with three legs or anything, you know. But look at God at his work. Where how he, None of us really are identical. Not even identical twins are identical. What a wonderful God. In his creation. And he says, I created. And because I created... I also have the right to judge. And in that verse 16, he simply says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All these things were created by man. By Jesus Christ. Therefore he will judge principalities. He will judge Satan. He will judge the beast. He will judge the Antichrist. He will judge each and every one of us. Have we all been created by who? By him. And we shall be judged by him. Go to Acts 17.31. Acts 17.31 Oftentimes we wind up forgetting that God though time does not limit him and he does not function per se in time But God has set certain points in place. And nobody's going to change that. God knew exactly what he was doing. You see it in creation. Why didn't he make man first? Really, no place to put man. So what does he make first? Earth. 
And as we follow him in creation story in Genesis, we find man comes last, basically. But everything is now ready for what? For man to have to live on earth. God says, boy, Israel. Why didn't he start off with Israel rather than an Adam? No. But he starts with Adam, this one man. Out of this one man also comes an Abraham, who also becomes the father of the Jews, in a sense. God sets certain points along in history in which he develops. And then he also says, in the fullness of time, even though he doesn't give us a time, he says, in the fullness of time, he would bring forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At, at, a, at a specific time. He didn't give us the time. He didn't give us the date. didn't give us the month or the year. But he said, it's coming. And then he brings it to pass. My point is this, which oftentimes we simply overlook. We overlook it because of the span of history that, has, that is behind us. And I doubt if the church itself today, many of us, if we truly believe that there's going to be a day in which God's going to judge us. Because we're so used to looking what's behind us. We don't look what might be before us. And we just say, look at all these hundreds of years, all these thousands of years. You got some people saying the earth was created millions of years ago. Well, whenever it was created, it has given to us in a sense, as though there is no God who has set a day that this is going to come to an end and that this is going to continue on forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's not going to stop. But look what God says here in Acts 17, 31. For he has set a day. Now, he didn't give us month or year. But he has set a day when he will what? Judge the world with justice. By the man he has what? He appointed. God said, there is a day in which this world will come. And there will be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, a day of giving an account. But we look at history and we say, boy, we're over 200 years old. We got another 200, 300 years ahead of us. And many of us have heard the story about Christ coming that is old hat. It don't mean that much. It has no depth. It's just another story. It's just another Bible myth. It's just another thing that's going on. But the reality is this. God has said He has set a day. Whether we believe it or not, that day is set that we shall be judged. And no man will miss it. No one will be given an excuse to miss that day, that time. Whether it be at the Bema seat or the white throne judgment, you will be there. You will be there. And you will give an account of what you have done from the time you've accepted Christ. You will give an account you will also, to those who have not accepted Christ, and they may say, well, he's not my Lord. He's not my God. I didn't choose him. But he is your judge. That one thing about municipal court, you don't get to pick your judge. That case is assigned to a judge, but you don't have a right to pick him. And on the eternal scale, you don't pick who's going to judge you. For there's only one judge. And he will judge. And he will judge. And God said, he set a day to the side. The only one person 
they said that is worthy to open the scroll and start the process of judgment of humanity. To start these woes, only one person is there. Now, go with me to 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 4. Paul is making this statement to some of his fellow men or brethren or some of those there at Corinth. Some could say, well, Paul's being quite arrogant. Everybody has a right to have an opinion. Never argue about a person's opinion. No. Because they have the right to make that opinion. Maybe totally wrong, but that's their opinion. Yeah. Okay? And it could be totally right. right. Okay? But their opinion is what they assume or think of you or your actions or whatever's going on. It's their opinion. There's a difference between opinion and facts. Oftentimes when you hear a person's opinion, you're not hearing facts. When somebody's speaking factually, you need to take heed. When somebody's just giving you their opinion, well, take it, leave it, look at it. It's not something you need to deal with in the heart. But when they deal with facts with you about the issues of life, you need to take that to heart. Hey. And he says, in that verse 3, he says, Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you. Hey. I can care very little of what you really think about me. The one who I'm concerned about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to personally try to offend you, and I will do all that I can do not to offend you. But there's some things that are not negotiable. There are some things that are not going to change. Where I can change and it don't hurt to change, I change. Where it doesn't hurt to be a little relaxed, I have that choice to be relaxed. But there are some things in our lives or should be in our lives that are non-negotiable with other people. And part of that is who I believe in and what he says. It's non-negotiable. And Paul says... I could care little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me, what? Innocent. Paul's willing, huh? Boy, yeah, I've examined my life. I looked at my life. But there's somebody far greater than me that's going to look at it. And because he knows that, he says, that doesn't make me innocent just because... I haven't found any guilt in my own life. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, you search my heart. You search my heart. You look at my heart. Because God's already told us the heart is what? Deceitfully wicked. And every man seeth himself right in what? His own eyesight. So that when he's judging himself, he sees himself what? Right in his own eyesight. But when you invite God into it, now it's different. That God reveals to you what you even think in areas of your life that you're righteous or you're right. That God shows you how ratchet you really are. And and, and Paul simply says, "Is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is what? What is hidden. Why does he have the right to judge? Because he alone can bring to light what is really hidden in the hearts of men. He brings it to light. And he allows not only you to see it, he says, what is done in the dark will be what? Bought to the light. 
what is whispered in secret will be shouted from what? The housetop. Hey. And he says, even those things which you cloak or you hide Amen. and you look good on the outside, God says, I'm going to open up and allow people to really see what it really is on the inside. And, and Paul just brings to that point. He says, boy, he will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. The real issue is, do you want to be praised by men or praised by God? Hey, that's, that's, that's the real issue. Paul's thing is... Hey, your judgment really doesn't matter. But God's does. I I don't want to leave you in this hungry where what man think about you isn't important. Because it is. But it's not the final say. The issue is this here. As men see me living in Christ, they ought to be able to make a judgment by saying, that's a godly man. He's not perfect, but he's striving to follow after Christ. That's a judgment that people should be able to make. But they'll also make this one. That's a hypocrite. (laughs) That's one person that says, and they'll quote the Bible, but they do the other. (laughs) No, that's a hypocrite. When we judge and give people trophies and awards and we give them this and we give them that, we're making judgment, but what we're not making is final judgment. God makes that. God makes that. Then from that point, when you go into Romans fourteen four, the question asks, should you judge another man's servant? Now, who created me? God did. And he has every right to judge me. To judge me. When you go to John 5, 26-27, you find that he's given this authority. He's given this authority. And oftentimes we question, well, well, what gives him the right to even judge us? One, he is the creator. Second, has been given to him by the Godhead, by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They have agreed because of the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he would be the one that would judge. But he even says, my judgment is not my own. If I only do what I hear of the Father. Now, in verse 26, pick up with me in chapter 5. He goes on. Let's get there. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to do what? To judge. Who's worthy to open up the scroll? He is. Why? He has the right to judge. He has the right to say what the punishments are going to be. He has that right. Because he is the son of man. Because he is the son of man. He has that right. Right. Turn just a couple pages over. John twelve forty eight. He says, There is a judge for the one who rejects me. This verse is dynamic here. You know the hardest thing for man to do sometime when, when man is judging? Is to get their own emotions out of the way. To get themselves out of the way. That judgment can be without any bias. 
And I never looked at this scripture differently. It's just giving thought and just talking and praying and so forth. Jesus Christ takes himself out of the judgment. No bias here. And he says, there's one that will judge them. The word. The word. The word. That which has already been spoken, that which has already been laid down, I'm out of the thing. only thing I got to ask, did you do this? Did you follow these instructions? Did you live like what the verse says for you to do? There's no bias about me saying, well, you didn't do what I told you to do in a sense. I'm not showing favoritism over one person or over the other. Because you may have been that close. But one of you, you ever watch a a race where the guy just wins it by leaning into it? But he won. The other guy was close, but that guy who leaned and broke, he won. The two of you might be that close. And the Lord will ask this one question. Did you follow the instructions of my word? And the word itself will judge you. Either you did or you didn't. He says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me. For that unbeliever. There's a judge for them. Therefore, there's no bias here. For the same thing that was required of those who are saved was also required of who? Of those who are lost. It's not that I like them better than I like those over here. It's not that I chose this group and didn't choose this group. The issue boils down to one thing. Did you follow my word? For if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Did you follow that? Did you believe that there's no other name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved? Did you follow that? He said, boy, that word is going to judge That word's going to do it. Romans 14. Romans 14. He comes to this point. Everyone will give an account. No matter who you are, saved, unsaved. Black, white, yellow, green, communist, free, democracy, Republican, Democrat, don't matter who you are. We're all going to give an account. So he starts in that verse 7 of 14. For none of us live to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. He says, none of us. I believe he's speaking not only to the believer, but to everyone here. That none of us live to ourselves. None of us die to ourselves. There's one who is over us all. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. He's the one who created us. Now, some will interpret that this is only for the believer. If I interpret it that way, I have to ask this question here then. Who created the unbeliever? Who created the unsaved? Who's over those who are dead in Christ? Who are, who's over those 
who are dead outside of Christ. He's over it all. Every walk of life. I don't care if you're a black man, white man. I don't care if you're a Russian, Greek. I don't care if you're Vietnamese, Cambodian. I don't care if you're Spanish. I don't care if you're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. He's over it all. He's over it all. You may not recognize him, but he knows who he is. He is the final authority for all life. He's the final authority for all life. And he is the one that all life will give an account to. No matter what you believed, you're going to give an account to him. And he says, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord of what? Of both. The dead and the living. You then. Here comes the question. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before what? God's judgment seat. We're all going to be judged by him. Whether it be at the Bema seat or the white throne, who's there judging? He is. He is. Go to James 4 and we're going to finish with this judging part. But I wanted to paint a good picture about him having the ability to judge, then given the right to judge, and because he is the creator, he does judge. In 4.12, he simply makes this statement. There is only one lawgiver. That's it. Only one. And because there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge. One lawgiver, one judge, who we will give an account to how well we kept the law or kept his word. Just one. Just one. Now, that question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? It says in that verse 6, the Lamb is worthy. Another reason why he has that privilege to judge now in that verse 6. He may look weak, but he's strong because it says that when John said he looked at it, it looked as though he was slain or slaughtered. It looked like he was someone who was weak, but he's strong. He's strong. And it describes him further. It says, boy, in that verse 6, it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The seven horns is that complete authority. That word seven means, boy, complete. Complete. It's that figure that always means complete in the scripture. That word seven, seven. Seven days the Lord created on that seventh day everything was completed. Seven, seven. He has complete authority. Horns stand for one who has authority or one who rules. And he has complete authority and ability to rule. And then the seven eyes, complete knowledge. He sees it all. God doesn't miss anything. God is an excellent, 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 excellent secretary. Doesn't miss a thing. Keep perfect records. Not missing a thing. Even that which is done in the dark, he's able to write about. 
and put it down. Even that which you think nobody else knows about it or sees it, he writes it down. He sees it. He sees it. Hey. And in John 4, 24, 25, he just says, boy, he knows the very secrets of men's heart and nothing will be hidden. Because Jesus is worthy, he opens the first seal. Chapter 5 is saying, who is able to open the seal? And it boils down to the one who is able to judge, the one who has all authority, the one who can even limit the Antichrist in his actions. And he opens the first seal. And John says, I see it. I see it. This is what John says in 6.1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. I watched him. I watched him open it. And then he heard the word come. The word come there can also be the word go or sent. That Christ in his authority is saying, go. You're permitted to do these things. And as the horses are revealed, he's going to let us know the things that he is allowing Satan or the Antichrist to perform on earth. And he sends it. He sends it for the testing of men. He, he, he sends it for the trials and the tribulations on earth. Now, this is one that I think is one of the best kept secrets in the Bible. We say it, but I don't know if we really believe it. Amen. We said one of the reasons that China is one of the fastest growing churches in the world is because of the persecution that takes place there. We say in Africa, the reason that they're growing leaps and bounds, Christians, is because of the persecution there. And wherever we see persecution take place, what do we see? We see Christian people coming to the Lord. We see revival take place. I think we're going to yet see some of the greatest revivals during the tribulation time. Because of the pressure that God puts on this earth. That only hope people will have will be in Jesus Christ and him alone. Because Satan will have robbed all other hope. Right now we kind of like coast alone. We put on automatic pilot. We put it on cruise as though, boy, we can just relax in life and don't worry about a thing. But see, in these days, you're going to worry about where you're going to eat at. In these days, you're going to worry if you've got enough change to jiggle in your pocket. See? In these days, you're going to wonder if you're going to live the next day, the next hour. It's going to be totally different. But I think what comes out of that, the reason we see so many people saved, and we see so many saints is that there's going to be a great revival that takes place also. In this time of persecution, in this time of Jacob's trouble, in this time, we're going to see something that people have never seen before. He says, He opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come or go! You have my permission to go and do now. I've taken the restraints off of you. The Holy Spirit has been drawn back. Go and do. John, John now sees a white horse. And the rider on that white horse. But understand when you look at these first four horses, the rider is never really talked about per se. Tells us the effects of what's going to take place with each one of the horses. 
The horses change, but the rider never changes. The rider is the Antichrist. He never changes. The horses are to identify what works of the devil or of Satan that the Antichrist is going to fulfill in that moment of time of what's going to be taking place. So each one of the horses, in a sense, represents something that the rider is going to be allowed to do or the Antichrist is allowed to perform and to afflict upon people. You never hear anything about the rider changing. You hear the horses change in color. And then after the fourth one, you don't hear anything else about horses. It just takes place. The writer cannot be Jesus Christ. Why? He's the one opening it up. And plus, he's the one giving permission for the Antichrist to do these things. Look, and there before me was a white horse. His rider held a bow. When you look at that bow, that bow is a weapon. Nowhere in Scripture do you find Christ with a bow. And in Revelation, it's the sword. And when you usually hear Scripture talk about his power, it's used in the sword, not in a bow. But the bow is a weapon. And at that time, when you go back in history... The bow was just really coming into play. And the bow became a very powerful weapon. Because what made the bow so powerful is that you could stand at a distance and hit your target. Where with a sword you got to beware. And the Antichrist here with his bow is going to bring forth war. And the bow is used for something. It's used to kill. It's used to kill. Make war and kill. It says he was given a crown. The crown is that he would rule. And he would be a person with authority. Now, I want you to, for a moment with me, just think. Boy, time is getting past here, too. But just think with me for a moment. You be in Israel, and all the world is against you. But here rises up this one who is conquering and conquering. And it seems like every battle he's in, he's what? Would it be so hard for you to enter into a covenant or a contract with that one? For in that one you think is your security. In that one you think, boy, you're going to have peace. And boy, in that one, since they're the most powerful thing on earth right now, and they're saying, you can build your temple, go right ahead. It would be no problem for Israel to sign a contract with a Gentile. That is that powerful. Has that kind of strength. That is conquering. And ruling over. And has authority. Not everywhere. But yet. He's big enough to be on the block. That says. Don't mess with me. I'll conquer you. I'll overcome you. I'll defeat you. I'll kill you. And Israel from a distance is able to begin to see this and track it. Now understand this point also. With each one of the horses and what takes place, God doesn't give us a time period. Two years, three years, four years, two months, four months. He doesn't give us time. One action is going to lead right into another action. But as you read it, 
catch the intensity of the people and what's happening. And he says, he rode out to conquer. The NIV in some translation used the word bent. Strongly determined to conquer. You don't find it in the original Greek. You don't find it in King James. You don't find it in many others. What you find is conquer. And the word conquer simply means overcome. 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 To overcome no matter what I have to do, I'm going to overcome. To conquer what was not his. And that's what the Antichrist is out to do. To conquer what is not his. To subdue and overcome. To prevail and get the victory. And it looked like he's well on his way until we get to chapter 19 and 20. And it's surprising. With the Antichrist, the first horse he's seen on is a white horse. And usually the white horse always stood for what? Victory. The conqueror would ride in on a white horse. And then when you see Jesus, and then what is he on? A white horse. A white horse. And he simply says, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. His rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out to conquer, bent on conquering. No matter what the cost. As we pick up in verse 2. And we're going to begin to see men. Because it's going to talk about what men are going to do. Satan so influences us. And we'll pick this up next week. And we're beginning to see it now. We have no problem shooting each other. We have no problem taking each other's life. Now, I'll tell you in a moment. Yeah, there's a time when if you're going to go to war, let's make war sweet and over with very quickly. If it takes killing 10,000 people, kill them and let's be done with it. Based on this philosophy... Sometimes there's only peace after a war. And you want the peace as soon as possible. You don't want to prolong the pain. That's Gus Brown's philosophy. I picked that up from General MacArthur. But, but the whole issue is that you're going to see men, as we go through this, without a conscience, that are willing to be head, willing to kill. For no reason than this, you believe in Jesus Christ. You say that you're going to follow Christ. And you will not take the mark of the beast. And there are going to be those who are willing to kill you. And some will be in your own family that will turn you in. And it will be those who also have, as we say, a great falling away. That love their life more than they love who? Jesus Christ. But those who love Jesus Christ were overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony of Jesus Christ. And that they have long ago died to self and lived for Christ. That they don't love their own life. They're willing to give it up for him. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word. 
And may you, O God, continue to open your word unto us. And I pray for those who are here that, Lord, not only will they be hearers, but will they go, O God, and search it out for themselves. That they would study this passage over and over and over again to get a clear picture of who Jesus Christ truly is. And Lord, may you speak to our hearts, even in these latter days, that Lord, the sacrifices that we will make to see someone else come to the Lord is not a matter of nickels and dimes and dollars, Lord. It's a matter of us giving it all. Because Christ gave it all that we might be saved. 